Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, are you ready to add a sprinkle of joy to your day? Then you need to check out Add to Cart. Hi, I'm Sujan Pak. And I'm Kulap Vilaisak. We're your hosts, and on this show, we talk about the things we buy, the things we buy into, and what it says about who we are. That's right. Each week, we're going to have some honest and maybe, you know, little TMI conversations about all the fabulous, weird, wonderful things we're adding to or ditching from our carts. You know, we talk about beauty products, latest health trends, philosophies we're passionate about. Nothing is off limits on this podcast. We're diving deep into everything we and our guests buy into and exploring what it reveals about who we truly are. We're going to decide what's worth the investment, be it money or emotions. Add to Cart from Lemonada Media has new episodes out on Tuesdays, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey friends, it's Friday, May 26th. Welcome to The Interesting, where we break down the viral and very interesting news you might have missed. I'm V Spear, and today, a deluge of money is streaming into the Southwest to incentivize people to save the Colorado River. The new video game Zelda has people talking about their carbon footprint. And Claire Dieterer is here to talk about her new book, Monsters, which asks whether or not we can like good art made by bad people. All that and more on today's V Interesting from Lemonada Media. Let's be smart together. And now for some headlines. Let's start in the American Southwest, where three states reached a landmark deal this week to keep the Colorado River flowing freely. Well, for at least a few more years. The river supplies drinking water to 40 million Americans, not to mention millions of acres of farmland. But decades of drought, population growth, and climate change have taken their toll on the river, and the wet winter only helped so much. Water is worth more than gold in the Southwest, and that water is starting to run out. You might remember last summer that the levels of Lake Mead and Lake Powell dropped so low, officials worried it would cause a water and power catastrophe across the West. They were also finding a lot of old-timey sunken cars with bodies in the trunks. Still no sign of Jimmy Hoffa, though. Around this time, the federal government ordered California, Arizona, and Nevada to come up with a plan to reduce their water use before it was too late. Fast forward to this week when the states finally shook hands. They agreed to conserve roughly 3 million acre feet of water by the end of 2026. And I know you're all like, what is an acre feet? Well, I don't know what it is exactly, but that's the scientific term, okay? Just like 
picture an acre of land filled with water a foot deep, and then multiply that by three million. I mean, it's a lot of water. It's a lot of water. The deal will conserve about 13% of the H2O in the lower Colorado basin, and it's being called the most aggressive cut ever. So how will the states actually do this? California, Arizona, and Nevada say that they plan to pay farmers, ranchers, water districts, and tribes to temporarily tamp down on their hose use. Some farmers may quit cold turkey and get paid not to farm. And I can already hear your conspiracy wheels turning, okay? So listen, this is a heads up. Every single time they change the water stuff out there and they pay farmers not to farm, that conspiracy theory pops up that the government is paying farmers to cause a food shortage. That is not happening. Don't freak out and don't go buy 20 gallons of freeze-dried ham, okay? You're going to be okay. This deal is actually worth celebrating. It's definitely not a silver bullet because first off, it only runs through 2026 and the other four states that rely on the river, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, they also need to face their own reckoning as the river continues to decline. In other words, this deal is gonna buy cities like LA and Phoenix sometime, but we've gotta get a whole lot more work done to keep the fruit basket of our country alive and thriving. Westward ho! Now, the money going out to farmers and water districts in the West came from the Inflation Reduction Act, and that act is financing something else, too, a simpler way to do your taxes. Well, maybe. We'll see. We can hope, right? The IRA gave our favorite agency, the IRS, $15 million to come up with a plan to launch its own free tax filing system. And listen— Nobody likes doing their taxes. I, too, wonder why they can't just give me the number and save us all the trouble. And often it feels like I end up paying the tax preparer more than I actually get back in the refund. I mean, even TurboTax Free File tries to get you to upgrade and pay instead of, you know, like just actually filing the dang thing for free. That's probably why three out of four taxpayers surveyed said that they would rather use a free electronic tax filing service offered directly by the IRS. For ages, many of us have relied on the private sector to do our taxes. Think Intuit, H&R Block, QuickBooks, your dad. Wait, maybe <laughs> Does anybody else's dad still do their taxes? What a guy. What We need dads every day, all the time, but especially around tax time. And for all those decades, those companies have reaped the benefits. According to the research firm Ibis World, the tax prep industry in the U.S. is worth $14 billion. And those companies don't want their industry to get disrupted. The Washington Post reports that H&R Block spent more than $700,000 this year alone lobbying Congress not to support the idea. And if you think that's a lot of money, Intuit spent a million dollars. A spokesperson for the company told The Post that a direct-to-IRS e-file system is a solution in search of a problem and would unnecessarily cost taxpayers. I mean, they're not wrong about the program costing us money. The IRS estimates that running the program would cost between $64 million and $249 million a year. So our taxes would go toward helping us do our taxes. I mean, I don't know. This is like a hamster wheel. I feel like somebody's got to get paid somewhere to file this paperwork, and I would rather it kind of just cut to the real guy and maybe not deal with all the middlemen. 
Despite the efforts to squash the program, the plan seems to be moving forward. The IRS says a pilot program for a small group of taxpayers will be up and running by January of next year when the 2024 filing season begins. I hope I get picked. I would love to be one of the first people to try this out. I'm sure my dad would love if I was one of the first people to try this out. Though, honestly, there's no chance of me starting my taxes in January. Okay, enough about taxes. Let's use our screens to do something fun, like play a video game. The new Legend of Zelda game became the biggest release of the year when it launched last week, and it is still sitting comfortably at number one. It's broken sales records, earned rave reviews, and driven some fans to even take time off of work to play. Now, my wife has been loving it, and me and my friend Kyle had to start a group chat to support each other, as each of our spouses are very dedicated to the quest and leaving us to our own devices. But there's a deeper world inside video games that we seldom dive into, their impact on climate change. And I'm sorry, I hate to be that guy and bring up our planet's demise when you're just trying to collect your pine cones, paraglide, and keep that President Hudson sign from falling over, but it's true. Creating and playing video games burns a lot of carbon, and we are finally waking up to it. In his book, Digital Games After Climate Change, author Benjamin Abraham estimated the gaming industry produced between 3 and 15 million tons of carbon dioxide in 2020 to create video games. That includes buying energy from local grids to keep the lights on and power the computers developers use to make them. Abraham says the amount of emissions the video game industry uses is about the same as the global film industry or the European country of Slovenia, the entire country of Slovenia. And that estimate doesn't even include the carbon that goes into making consoles and computer hardware, or shipping the games, or the power it takes to download them digitally, or play them. I mean, this is a lot of power when you think about it. So what can we do about it? Some of the biggest companies have set ambitious sustainability targets, and Microsoft developers are toying with ways to allow players more control over their energy consumption. If you don't mind a slightly fuzzier pause screen when you go to take a pee, great, you just saved a tree in the Amazon. Xbox is creating new controllers with recycled materials like water jugs and reclaimed CDs. And hey, that's one less Backstreet Boys Millennium album in the ocean. Sounds good to me. And Sony has pledged to use 100% renewable energy in its internal operations by 2030. And it's not just the big companies cleaning up their game. Take indie developer Kara Stone, who was featured in CNET for running her games off a solar panel. She's creating games with highly compressed video footage that shrinks your data footprint. Think old-school Game Boy-level graphics. And I mean, the 90s are cool again, right? It's very authentic. If you want to learn more about how to do your part as a gamer, check out an organization called Playing for the Planet Alliance. It's a collection of 40 game studios and publishers that pledge to reduce their emissions. Yes, video games are a great way to escape from reality. But even Zelda fans would agree. The tears of the kingdom shouldn't cause tears in the ozone layer. Speaking of games, how about a round of mini golf? Let's head to Vermont, where a small liberal arts school is teaching people about reproductive justice using putt-putt. Students studying feminism at Middlebury College designed a mini golf course that brings to life the systems that deny people reproductive freedom in this country. Each of the course's 11 holes focuses on a different topic, like contraception, crisis pregnancy centers, and the racist history of modern gynecology. 
At the 10th hole, for example, players are met with a real question that some incarcerated people in Tennessee have to answer. Do you consent to be sterilized in exchange for a reduced prison sentence? If you putt through the tunnel marking yes, your ball soars straight through the prison cell replica without a hitch. If you putt through the tunnel answering no, you're met with obstacles that make leaving the prison cell more difficult. Creators told the VT Digger that the kitschy aesthetic of the course paired with the violent injustice it depicts creates a game that feels even more accurately American than regular miniature golf. The course is free and open to all, from lax bros putting through a maze of condoms to little kids trying to sink their ball into a state that offers legal abortions. Undoubtedly, the most uplifting hole is the last hole, Hole 11, which focuses on activism. It asks players to discuss what they will do to support reproductive rights moving forward. I can't wait to see this game sweep the nation. I mean, who needs pickleball when you've got reproductive justice mini golf? If I could play a round of mini golf with anyone right now, it would be today's guest, Claire Dieterer. She's a writer most known for her memoirs, and her latest book, y'all, is so good. It's all about how we should view art made by people who ended up doing really terrible things, like... Think about the art of Woody Allen or Roman Polanski or even Pablo Picasso. Do we just light it all up in one big dumpster fire? Or can we grant ourselves permission to separate the art from the art maker? Stick around. We'll be right back with an illuminating conversation. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out now from Lemonada Media. Hey friends, welcome back. When is the last time you enjoyed a good work of art? Odds are it was probably pretty recent. Reliving your era's tour favorite musical moments or taking a quick trip to the local art museum or even finally checking out your friend's one-woman cabaret where she interprets her childhood through the lens of a melting icicle. Is that just me? I guess I'm just lucky then. We've all grown fond of at least one work of art in our lifetime. It can often mean a lot to us and contribute to who we are today. 
But what happens when the artist behind that work does something bad, something really bad? Do we continue to support it? Do we boycott it? Can we separate the art from the artist? Is it even that deep? My next guest explores just how complicated this can be, especially when a certain work of art holds a lot of value in our life. Claire Dieterer is an acclaimed memoirist, essayist, and critic. In her most recent book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, Claire grapples with what it means to balance moral outrage with admiration. From learning the difference between thoughts and emotions to reckoning with cancel culture, Claire delves into this conflict we feel when viewing something beautiful made by somebody who did a really, really horrible thing. And I do want to note before we get into this conversation, it contains a mention of sexual abuse. If you think this will be hard or harmful to listen to, please take care of yourself first and just play a different episode. Okay, let's bring in Claire. Claire, thank you so much for being here. Hi, V. So nice to see you. I'm so excited you're here to talk about your new book, which builds on your viral Paris Review essay, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men? What made you want to extend the essay into a full book? Well, it's sort of funny. The essay was actually written as the first chapter of a projected book. Mm. So the origin story is that I was writing my previous memoir, Love and Trouble, which was about growing up as a girl in the sort of sexually, not sort of, very sexually predatory 1970s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And because the subject matter was, you know, a bummer, I was trying to figure out how to engage with it in a way that felt dynamic. And so I started working with different borrowed forms. The book is written in a bunch of different forms, like lists or maps or, um, I don't know, how-to guides. And one of the forms was an open letter to Roman Polanski. Mm. Um, So I sort of take, you know, it's a memoir, but I don't know Polanski. I just take him as a kind of, you know, straw man or totem figure of the predatory man of the 1970s, because he uh, raped a 13-year-old around the same time I was molested. So it sort of becomes a stand-in for my own experience and a more cultural lens to look at it. Anyway, I did all this writing and thinking about Polanski. I researched him. I researched the crime. I looked at the deposition. And when I was done, I had this very strange experience of still wanting to watch the films. Mm -hmm. I had been a film critic. I'd done film studies in college. And some of his films, Chinatown, Repulsion, And Rosemary's Baby are among my favorite films of all time. And I found I could still watch them. And this was like in 2014 or 2015, Mm. long before Me Too. And I thought, well, this is an interesting problem. And I just sort of thought it was my problem. I thought it was like a a lonely problem that I was going to think about. And the more I thought about it, I was like, this is a book. And I began writing in 2016. And I'd been writing for a year when in October of 2017, of course, the accusations about Harvey Weinstein kind of coalesced a lot of Forces that were underway, right? Like, it's not as though Me Too or the movement didn't exist, but suddenly that's what mattered. Suddenly it was at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I thought, I've been writing on this for a year. Like, I need to participate in this dialogue. Mm. So I took what was then the first chapter and submitted it to the Paris Review. And it did, as you said, go viral, which was a very interesting experience. Because we all have these problems, right? Even with people we love in our regular lives, where we're like, I love this person. Maybe it's a sibling or a parent. They have done this horrible thing. And I'm so conflicted with like where I stand on morality for strangers and where I stand on like uh, forgiveness for the ones I love. Mm. And so I'm not surprised that it's a book. (laughs) You 
probably could do several chapters of this. Right. Um, and everybody right now is likely thinking of the monstrous person that they still just like wish that they could love, but struggle with how do we love that person? Or is there a place for it? Or is it just over and we can't have it anymore? And in your book, you explore the work of many artists, including Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, which was a huge you know, issue for so many people struggling with that. Um, and we know that some of the more recent artists who did or said horrible things, such as like R. Kelly or J.K. Rowling, uh, but can you give other examples of tainted art that people might not be as familiar with? Yeah. So when I started thinking about the issue, I really, I think one of the reasons that the Paris Review piece I think one of the reasons it really struck a chord, though people didn't know this, was that I had been writing it for over a year. Mm. So you have this kind of dialogue, which, as you say, people are bringing a lot of emotion to. And at that moment, especially in 2017, it was filled with hot takes, right? Everybody's bringing their, their big idea. And my take was the coldest of takes. I mean, it was emotional, but I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And I think that I was really surprised by how much people wanted and needed the nuance of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to kind of complete the book, my editor and I talked a lot about how do you touch what's emotional and real about this problem, but not have it so contemporary and so heated that people get, you know, so caught up in it that it just, the conversation kind of loses, almost loses focus or becomes overly volatile. Mm -hmm. And so she really urged me to use um, examples from the past, mm. both to kind of keep out of that hot take dialogue. It was almost like Louis C.K. was the cutoff. I don't know why, <laughs> but it was like anything after Louis C.K. We mostly didn't include. And so I think that we made it mostly people from the past to keep out of the hot take dialogue, but also to kind of make the book maybe have more, more longevity Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's of its moment, but it's also, I hope, something that will endure to some degree. That's the dream. So some of the people I talk about from the past are Picasso, Hemingway, Wagner. Uh, I talk about Doris Lessing. I talk about Valerie Solanus, Raymond Carver, a writer from the Northwest who's very, very important to me. Uh, those are a few of the people that I address. And it was so interesting because oftentimes when we're talking about like monstrous people, we're talking about men, right? Like typically mm -hmm. it's going to go because of Me Too or, or just the volume of terrible things that a lot of men have done. Not all men, but quite a few of them have done because of the positions of power that they hold. We don't often hear about monstrous women, but you do mm -hmm. include women in the book. Um, and that has sparked a little bit of like interrogation into the concept of monstrousness. Uh, mm. What made you want to include women in this? Yeah, well, kind of backing up to what you were saying about the interrogation of monstrousness, you know, this word monster, which, which I used for several reasons, but I began to look at it during the process and I thought, you know, is this the right metaphor? Is it the right word? It's when we say monster, it's very othering. It's very mm -hmm. finger pointing. And it also somehow, they still take up all the space. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to talk about the experience of the audience. That's mm -hmm. what the book's really about. It's really trying to be an autobiography of the audience. And so by calling them monsters and sort of foregrounding their crimes, it's just making a catalog of people who did rotten things, which isn't that interesting. Mm. And instead, I wanted to look at what it's like to consume that work. And I thought, you know, what do I mean by monster? I think what I mean is someone 
who has done something that makes us experience their art differently. Mm. It was really important to me for several reasons to write this book from a really subjective point of view and really own my own perspective and understand my own perspective in terms of gender, history, all kind, class, all kinds of things. I did write the book with some memoiristic impulse. And if you're doing that, like it doesn't take very long before you think, well, am I a monster? How am I a monster? What's What do I do that's not okay? And one of the things I came up against really quickly was this idea that when I'm making art and shutting the door against my children, who are adults now, but mm -hmm. weren't at the time I started this book, um, is that that can feel monstrous. Is it as monstrous as, you know, all of the terrible crimes that are cited about men here? No, but there's a way in which m women are judged for that behavior and internalize that judgment and feel monstrous. So I was trying to write about kind of an ex interior experience of the female artist that is a little more nuanced than just, I did, you know, someone does something that is reprehensible. There's a lot of like, who are the monsters adjacent also. I came from the food and beverage world. I was at the James Beard oh. Foundation for a number of years. Uh, and you want to learn about a couple of monsters. We yeah. sure did have a bunch of them uh, who won <laughs> James Beard Awards. And uh, do you get into chefs at all in the book? No, um, I would really like to hear you say more about this. It was, I, I could have done, like, I could have done chefs. I could have done sports figures. I, could, I had projected chapters on politicians. Yeah. But after a while, I realized that there's something very specific about the dynamic between artist and audience that I wanted to talk about. But of course, this exists in any, every industry. Oh, well, if I you get into food and beverage, I'm going to tell you, that's a whole other book on its own, because these are recipes, much like art, that becomes a part of your personality, of your family, of your tradition. Oh. And so you're looking at a Mario Vitale sauce that you really love, his bolognese, I'll say. And people have incorporated that into the way that they serve food to their families and have conversations. And he, as a monster, do you make Mario Vitale's bolognese anymore? And for us, the answer was no. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of people who were like, well, what about April Bloomfield? If you're going to take mm -hmm. Vitale out, then you have to take out a sous chef. And then you have to take out the James Beard Awards also because they're the ones who propped him up. And what about Food Network? And what about the Crocs company? I don't know. <laughs> like, you could just keep going and going and going and going. And the end of this monstrous uh, ecosphere never quite ends. Um, but with art, I imagine that that was something that people were experiencing as well. This is something that's provoked an emotional reaction in people, something that helped them find parts of themselves through this art. And now we're being told, well, can we like these songs? Can we enjoy this artist? Can we appreciate their literature? Can we? Yeah. So I think that I love what you just said. And one part that, I mean, I just want to acknowledge what you said about all of the other pieces of the puzzle that go to make a restaurant or a recipe or what have you. The same thing with a work of art. When when we let go of the, you know, the offender's work, we're also letting go of all the people who surround them. And that's very complicated. Um, but you also brought up this idea of loving the recipe. Mm -hmm. You know, like if, if they ever cancel Marcella Hazan and I can't have my <laughs> tomato sauce, I'm going to be very upset. So I get it. But you bring up this idea of love, you know, that you love this sauce and that it becomes kind of integrated into the life of your family. And I think that that none of this matters if there's not that side of the problem. You know, I remember my my then husband saying, well, I'm never going to listen to Kanye again. And I'm like, you never listened to Kanye in the first place. Like, well, what about David Bowie? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So 
it's not just that these are great artists. And I think that that is, was a really big realization for me in writing the book. You know, I think that at first I thought it's, well, how bad is the crime and how great is the art? And can we, you know, kind of make a calculator and balance it out and figure out if it's quote unquote worth it. Right. Mm -hmm. But really what I came to realize is that it's more about your individual experience of both halves of that equation. You know, it's, if you're looking at, for instance, what it is that the person's done, if you're a survivor, that's a different experience than someone who's, you know, not been through that. Like you're bringing your own subjective ideas to it, but you're also bringing your own subjectivity to your love, right? Like you may have a recipe you love too much to give up, or I might have a song that's crucial to who I was, you know, a David Bowie song that was, I listened to every day in 10th grade, or mm -hmm. maybe you're a kid who, you know, needed the Huxtable family mm -hmm. as an example of something to imprint on, you know, that you loved that when you were a kid because your experience is different than mine. If we start to try to balance some idea of something that's objectively good against a crime that's objectively terrible, we immediately get into trouble because who gets to decide? Mm. And so in a really deep way, the book is about pushing against that authority, Mm. and asking critics and people who are consuming art to think about their own subjectivity, their own historical status, who they are, where they come from, and their own emotional response to the work, not as a, you know, not as a problem, but just as part of the experience. And to my mind, I think that it's, I mean, I know that it sounds a little squirrely to say I don't know, but I don't know. You know, I really feel like it's each time a work of art is consumed. It's not just the biography of the maker that we're encountering, it's the biography of the consumer. And that occurs every time. I feel like either way, you know, if you just say, I can't do this, I absolutely support people who say, I can't spend money on this, or I, I just, it doesn't taste good anymore, right? Mm -hmm. On some kind of psychic level. Mm -hmm. But I also think that how we consume art is maybe not necessarily our best use of our political will. Mm. And there's other things that we can and do, you know, challenging ourselves to participate in other ways as well. Do you ever get hit with a cringy memory of your 13-year-old self out of nowhere? And suddenly you're panic sweating and laughing at the same time. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. We all get that. It's because being an adolescent is one of the most visceral shared experiences we have as people. And we want to talk about it. Join me, Penn Badgley, and my two friends, Nava and Sophie, on Podcrushed as we interview celebrity guests about the joys and horrors of being a teenager and how those moments made them who they are today. New episodes of Podcrushed are out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. It triggers like a little bit of shame in us, right? When we 
supported somebody and we loved them and we bought their albums or we hung their art on our walls and we said, we align ourselves with this person. This person represents what I care about and who I am in some ways. And then they do something that's not in line with that value system. And now we have to try and balance that moral outrage with our admiration. What do you think about that? I think that this problem has existed for a long time. Yeah. Right. I think that these the people have done terrible things and made great art as long as there's been humans, I'm sure. And I think one of the things that's really different now is that we are in this intensely biographical moment. Mm-hmm. We're in this moment where we know everything about everyone. Mm. You know, when I'm 56, when I was a kid, if I wanted to know about some band, if I was lucky, I'd find a, an article about it in in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, maybe find one little sentence about a, a band member, the guitarist I was interested in, you know. Or if you loved the Beatles, you'd wait every five years for a new Beatles biography to come out. But now the internet and biography are basically the same thing. The internet's made of and monetized by biography. Our biographies as social media users, but also biographies of people that come at us. So there's been this acceleration of our enmeshment with these figures. You know, what this idea that we sort of, this imaginary relationship we have with, with famous figures, it's, there's like an emotional tenor that didn't used to maybe be there so intently because there's kind of a category er- error. Mm-hmm. Because their biography and their image and their self is so omnipresent in our lives, we become collapsed with them. And then, of course, because fan communities are so passionate, we further that identification by, you know, writing fan fiction or making our own art or connecting with people online or, you know, there's ways that that enmeshment is so intense. And therefore, when it goes sideways, when they say something we don't agree or support, there is this kind of attendant shame. What does it mean about me? Because part of me is now bound up in you, mm-hmm. the artist. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, I think it makes the problem we're talking about more emotional. And I think it's one of the reasons I thought so much about teenagers in this book. Mm. You know, I really thought a lot about the experiences of all different kinds of teenagers, but because I remember being a teenager and needing music, needing art in a way, it's like identity formation and it's like a a loneliness mitigator, all those Mm. things that art does. And I think that teenagers and their disappointment is sort of the kind of purest form of what we're talking about. Because their love is more intense as well. And, of course, teenagers are incredibly moralistic. Um, so <laughs> yes. it's intensified on both sides. That is so true. Oh, my 16-year-old niece is evidence of that, certainly. We've been through several oh. artists now that haven't met the haven't met the moral code a couple times. Oh. It's okay. You get your heart broken as a teenager. It makes you a better person over and over and over, right? That's Well, right. And that's like these kids are taking these things seriously. I think it's... You know, I talk, I've been talking to so many people since the book has come out. And um, I t- I, when I have questions after events, often I will hear, hear from parents who are worried because their kids are somehow all caught up in what they call cancel culture. Yes. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe if you didn't give it this diminishing term, cancel culture, and listen to what they were saying, you could be having a dialogue about this. Because these the kids who are bringing up this stuff, they're, I mean, obviously sometimes they're doing it just to chap the assets of their parents, sure. but they're, it's also really serious and really important. So it's been interesting to watch that intergenerational dialogue. Do you think that there is any, like, good part 
to cancel culture? Is there something that we've gotten to with cancel culture that is a benefit to society? Well, I think that the phrase cancel culture is one that always makes me very uncomfortable um, because what we're really talking about is people, the inciting incident, the seed of cancel culture is somebody raised their hand and said, this crummy thing happened to me, right? That they spoke up and said something rotten that they lived through. And we cannot do better unless people do that and we listen to them. So the inciting seed is necessary. And the fact that it's happening more often, I would say, is overall a net good. The problem is that given the response to it, there's sort of several things that happen. But the main thing that happens is the person who's been accused experiences a loss of status. Mm -hmm. And loss of status is horrible. It's a shitty thing to live through. It's, it's really a crummy, difficult thing. It seems to me that there's a kind of balance between I get to say what happened to me, you experience loss of status, that's the trade-off we're at right now. And that seems to me, even though it's a basically terrible situation, tracing it all the way back to the person raising their hand, I think that's incredibly important if we want to do better. And so all the stuff that follows after that is complicated and sometimes out of control, but the it doesn't mitigate the fact that it's important for us to listen. I listen to this podcast, Behind the Bastards, just about every week. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I don't know it. Right but one of the things that I run into personally is when you hear the stories of awful people and the awful things they did, you sometimes start to develop empathy for their root story because oftentimes something awful happened to them. And that could be a very difficult feeling for the listener to navigate. You hear about the bad thing, let's say about a historical figure like Picasso, he did this bad thing, but then you hear about his life and you're like, well, of course he did a bad thing. And it's like, no, of course. No, there were other choices. And we start to really question ourselves when we have empathy for monsters. As you were writing the book, did you find yourself finding empathy for these characters and these people? Yeah, I'd love that you use Picasso as an example. And of course, Picasso had very good politics. Mm -hmm. But I will add, you know, I mean, there's some thought that R. Kelly suffered abuse. There's, you know, Michael Jackson certainly was exploited in his childhood. Polanski himself survived the Holocaust. And then, of course, the brutal slaying of his wife, Sharon Tate, mm -hmm. by the Manson family. Um, so people, you know, some of these people have experienced the very worst things that can happen. And then you know, went on to do rotten things themselves. Um, so I do think that there's, you know, this, in terms of causality, I do think sometimes there's a relationship there. But the larger question of um, finding empathy, you know, finding compassion, that becomes a preoccupation toward the end of the book. Um, around, partway through the writing of the book, I became sober and the... If you become sober, you are, in a sense, acknowledging that there was a problem or some kind of monstrousness because otherwise you wouldn't have to quit. I mean, that's sort of a key thing about being an addict and stopping being an addict. You don't quit because everything's going great, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's, there's a dialogue in recovery communities that is really wrestling with problems of, of Me Too, because, of course, there's all kinds of exploitations and accusations that are going on in recovery communities because these are incredibly vulnerable populations. At the same time, 
a lot of people in that community say, well, we can't just monster the other person or accuse the other person because if we get rid of the bad people, that's us, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we ended up here. So that experience of living through that really took me to the other side of starting to think about what compassion looks like, not just what is it for me to forgive other people, but what is it for me to expect and want forgiveness from them, which is, you know, how monstrous can I be until people stop loving me also becomes the question. And I think that gave me more room to start to think about approach my politics from a more structural point of view rather than a finger pointing kind of punitive point of view, which is maybe where the book starts out. And that's kind of the growth of the narrator of the book. I think she starts out then, you know, I start out much more kind of kind of a classic liberal feminist of like, let's just get these guys in trouble. And then it grows into a much more systemic questioning and trying to find some room for compassion. Did you find compassion then? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Not for everybody. We could be a little stingy with our compassion. Exactly. I think, <laughs> I think, you know, maybe that I, on a good day, maybe. It's hard. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly... It's fluid. Compassion is fluid. It can be given and taken away. Dep- yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, but it does exist. What do you think about this idea that to be an incredible artist, you have to be a tortured artist? You're mentally unstable, so you're a genius. And like, that's part of it, that this monstrousness is somehow what makes good art. Right. I think that I was really interested as I worked on this book and thought about this. And this is by no means a comprehensive, you know, this book is not meant to be a comprehensive catalog. Again, it's a subjective experience of the audience book. But what I noticed is that people who really got to enjoy the fruits of being a tormented and um, fantastically strange artist were white men. Yeah. There's a privilege that comes to doing these kind of out of bounds, impulsive behaviors that are expressive of a total freedom, you know, what you could call an absolute freedom, that is not only in how you make the art, but in how you sort of feel the world, and then also what you take from the world. You know, this this impulsivity is like given license all across the board. If artistic impulse is good, then all these other impulses must be good as well. So it's not to say that suffering or insanity are a privilege, but the to perform them and have them lifted as part of your art is something that a privileged group enjoys or enjoys might be strong. As you were going through this, were there any artists that you're like, you know what, this actually is a hard pass. This is a hard no. We can't separate the art from the artist in this case. Yes. I mean, there are. I think that, you know, Cosby is, there are accusations. You know, he hasn't been convicted. And But I think when somebody has done something that's so at odds with the work, Mm. it makes it really, really hard to consume the work. Mm. So it's not just sort of an intentional hard pass. It's almost like it's impossible. Like, how do you perceive the warmth and the, you know, the family-minded quality of Dr. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the, in the context of the accusations, it's, it feels impossible to me. I have Mm. tried but again, I think we come back to that problem of, I mean, I loved the Cosby show when I was young, but it wasn't integral to who I was. So for somebody else, maybe it wouldn't be a hard pass. Maybe that's, that show is still valuable to them. Mm-hmm. 
But for me, that was the one. Sorry. That makes, yeah, that makes sense to me because like you said, even, I mean, not in the book and a more modern figure, but a lot of people feel that way about Ellen, right? This idea that she's so incredibly generous and dancing and wholesome and giving. And then you hear stories about how, you know, her staff is saying she wasn't super nice or the idea that you like to scare people might not be indicative of like a really great person all the time. Um, and a lot of people can separate those things. And some people, you know, definitely can't because it feels like a trick when someone is a monster, but they're David Chang or Mario Vitale or somebody right. who's like notorious for being a hothead and notorious for doing these really deeply awful things. They never were like tricking you into thinking they were a good guy. They were always showing you who they were. And it wasn't until there was this critical mass of monstrousness mm. that we decided that we were going to move on from them. And to your point, some people had a little bit more leeway in how much of a monster they can be before we reach that critical mass. I think Ellen is such an interesting choice because she because it's it's very similar. I hadn't really thought of it before, but it's very similar to the Cosby problem where it's not just that she is sort of tricking you. It's that her whole performance, everything about her is about this quality of warmth right. and of inclusiveness. And also, you know, her role historically that she's sort of the the acceptable face of queerness. Then mm-hmm. she's sort of doing that work to reach middle America, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But when that conflict comes up, it's all the more painful and all the more, I can't, the feeling, I can't look at what she's doing. I can't believe it. Because it's just too at odds. Yeah. Is there any particular piece of art that you think sparks a big moral conflict for people? Maybe aside from, you know, we've talked about the particular artists and what they've done, but maybe just like an example of work that people are like, oh God. I <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think the the one that comes up quite a lot is Manhattan by Woody Allen. Mm. So uh, Manhattan, for the younger listeners, is a film that was made in 1979. Um, Allen plays a 40-something man who's dating a 17-year-old high school student. She does turn 18 over the course of the film. And uh, it's just fine. You know, he makes a couple cracks about how it's weird to be dating a high school student. But the opening scene of the film is Woody Allen, I mean, his character, having dinner with another couple, also in their 40s, and the Marielle Hemingway character, who's Tracy, who's 17. And it's just treated as a normal dinner out. I mean, they make a couple comments about it, but they're not horrified. Mm -hmm. They don't. And it's just the whole film is this sort of raising up of his relationship with Tracy as being very authentic and meaningful. And Alan does this incredible thing where he puts the words affirming the value of the relationship into Tracy's mouth. Mm. Right. She's the one who's always saying that we have a great relationship. We have great sex. We trust you. You know, she's he he very cannily puts those into the girl's mouth. Mm. And there's this really I mean, so that is a work of art that's sort of the opposite of the Cosby problem. Right. If you, if in Cosby and Dr. Huxtable, you have this kind of break, you know, that they're so different from each other, it's almost incomprehensible. Or like you were saying about Ellen, kind of this the schism inside mm-hmm. the image. With Alan, you have Manhattan with his relationship with a 17-year-old girl, and then a few years later, his relationship with his partner's daughter, Soon Yi, who he had been a parental... He claims he wasn't a parental figure to her, but she was, you know, it's it's 
constantly debated, was she finishing high school? Was she starting college when they got together? But similar age girl. So the bad deed or the deed and the art are so close that it becomes really uncomfortable. And it feels like, first of all, it's, I mean, it's horrifying on its own. Like, I, I remember watching the movie and trying to think it was okay when I was a kid. You know, like, oh, I love Woody Allen. I think he's hilarious. And this seems a little weird, but I guess this is how sophisticated people act. Great. Mm-hmm. But I think that in the, in the post-Soon-Yi era, once he started the relationship with his very young then very young wife, now wife, um, it began to feel like in that film, Alan was grooming the audience. And in some ways, I almost feel like he's grooming himself. Mm -hmm. He's telling himself it's okay. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very strange piece of work in that sense. And it's very validated by the other actors in that particular film, because you have someone as beloved and cherished and perfect as Miss Meryl Streep in that film. And it's difficult to to not believe that, like, well, she's a good person and she's in the movie and, like, maybe it is okay. I mean, there's there's definitely choices that monsters make that trick us into thinking things are more than they are. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's, it's I think for a lot of Alan fans, Manhattan was his greatest work. And it has all these sort of markers of high art. It's black mm-hmm. and white. Mm-hmm. It's like he brings in Gershwin. There's just this incredible... And it is technically like a very beautiful film. And there's parts of it that are very, very funny. But it also sort of has this way of holding itself as culturally profound that, right, kind of makes you give more of a pass to what's going on. Now, your book invites us to reflect on what we're really feeling about ourselves, about these people, about this art. What are some tips you'd offer on how to engage in deep introspection to do a wide inventory of your true feelings? Yeah, I think that early in writing the book, I started to think about the difference between ethical thoughts and moral feelings. And I noticed that when people wanted to tell me their thoughts, they always ended up telling me their feelings. Mm. So I remember one friend saying, you're writing about Woody Allen. I have so, this very, very smart friend. I have so many thoughts about him. And then when we started to talk, she said, I hate him. He just fills me with rage. And I was like, those are feelings. And so I think that, and that was a really signal moment in the writing of the book for me, was realizing that, We think we're having thoughts, but we're really responding emotionally. And that is not to denigrate emotion. It's Mm -hmm. to understand that that's the core of how we're approaching the problem. So I think that that's, I don't know what tips I have, like light a candle. I don't know. but, (laughs) But I do think just when you're having a very strong response to something, try stating it to yourself as an emotion rather than as a rational thought Mm -hmm. and try to get after what it is that it's making you feel. I mean, I think there's a lot of political issues this could actually be really helpful with, but um, I appreciate the question as a, you know, how, how do we actually turn this into a process for solving the problem? And I think the number one thing is, stop sort of, you know, trying to stop yourself from valorizing these feelings by making them thoughts about how the other guy's wrong. Well, what is it, you know, what is it you're feeling? What is it, what's coming up? Yeah, I feel that. Man, if you're in my DMs or my comments, it's the exact same thing. Like you say, the thoughts are the feelings. In mine, oftentimes it's like people are sharing their fears or the things they're excited about, which are both emotions, but framing them as facts. And I'm like, okay, 
let's work through those together. Like, yes, it's triggering this work or this event is triggering something in you that needs to be expressed. Uh, How much of this is fact and how much of this is how we feel about it? And does it matter if it's a fact or a really strong feeling? Because sometimes those are two different types of truth and they both matter incredibly to us. And so it's like, oh man, we're going to have to bring a psychologist in for the end of this interview. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No, I think that that's really true. This tension between fact and feeling or even thought and feeling is at the heart of a lot of what we're dealing with right now. What do you hope the the listener or the reader takes away from the book? Hmm. I hope that I, what I really hope, and this is sort of a funny thing to say is I hope it reconnects them to the value of art in their life. Mm. I think that that's one of the things the book is really holding up is what art means to you. You get to decide what it means to you and you get to decide how you're going to navigate this problem. What's coming next for you? Any topics you're excited to explore? Really nice people who do kind yes. things all day long. <laughs> oh, let's not get into the saints because I think yeah, we'll probably no, find right. a few more monsters. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But um, I've had enough of the monstrous men for a while. Yes. Yes. Definitely a break is needed. Maybe just something on like, I don't know. Yeah. Happy things. I, I can't mm-hmm. think of any right now, but I'm sure there'll be something. <laughs> well, you know, I'm living my... My father passed away last year, and he had lived in the same houseboat in Seattle for 50 years. Wow. And I'm living on I'm living on his houseboat, and so I've been making and I've been making notes on that, and it's been a really, really fascinating and sometimes hilarious experience. I would love to read that book. Honestly, I'm so just like obsessed with the stories of older people and especially older mm-hmm. men. Just like my grandpa. Just the coolest guy also recently passed away, but we're finding little things that he cared about now. And we don't take enough time to think about like how our dads or how our grandpas really cherished and thought things were precious and had these deep emotions about stuff they kept. I think that would be a really interesting book. And living on a houseboat alone, you could probably write a book about all the challenges of that. Exactly. Exactly. Gosh. Tell folks where they can find you. Do you have social medias and all that? Yep. I'm under Claire Dieter on all the, well, not on TikTok, but on Twitter, Facebook, we'll and, get you on TikTok. and Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually I'll be doing some dances. So yeah, <laughs> they can find me there. Perfect. Thank you so much, Claire, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Every episode of the show, I leave the interview with like a weekend's worth of reflecting to do. And this week, that is especially true. When she talked about weighing your own emotional connection to the art with the bad thing that the artist did, I mean, like, wow, that just like really makes you think. And that calculation is going to be different for everyone. There is not a one size fits all decision here. After the credits, stay tuned for an exclusive listen to Claire's book, Monsters, compliments of Apple Books and our very own Lemonada Book Club, which unites lovers of storytelling from podcasting to audiobooks. You can learn more about our Book of the Month picks and listen to Monsters in its entirety at Apple Books. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode where we dig into the headlines you may have missed. Please leave us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help people find the show. Follow me at Under the Desk News on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And guess what, friends? There is even more Be Interesting with Lemonada Premium. Subscribers get exclusive access to bonus content, like former MTV news reporter Suchin Pak on the importance of maternal health care. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, stick around after these credits.
The Interesting is a Lemonada Media original. Our producers are Chrissy Pease, Catherine Barnes, and Martine Macias. Our VP of Weekly Programming is Steve Nelson. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax and Jessica Cordova-Kramer. Mix and scoring is by James Sparber. Music by Seth Applebaum. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing wherever you listen. And follow us across all social platforms at Vitaspear, at Under the Desk News, and at Lemonada Media. If you want more Be Interesting, subscribe to Lemonada Premium only on Apple Podcasts. And follow the show wherever you get your podcasts or listen ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. I started keeping a list. Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, William Burroughs, Ricard Wagner, Sid Vicious, V.S. Naipaul, John Galliano, Norman Mailer, Ezra Pound, Caravaggio, Floyd Mayweather, though if we start listing athletes, we'll never stop. And what about the women? The list immediately becomes much more tentative. Anne Sexton? Joan Crawford? Sylvia Plath? Does self-harm count? Okay, well, it's back to the men, I guess. Pablo Picasso, Lead Belly, Miles Davis, Phil Spector. Add your own. Add a new one every week, every day. Charlie Rose, Carl Andre, Johnny Depp. They were accused of doing or saying something awful, and they made something great. The awful thing disrupts the great work. We can't watch or listen to or read the great work without remembering the awful thing. Flooded with knowledge of the maker's monstrousness, we turn away, overcome by disgust. Or we don't. We continue watching, separating, or trying to separate the artist from the art. Either way, disruption. How do we separate the maker from the maid? Do we undergo a willful forgetting when we decide to listen to, say, Wagner's Ring Cycle? Forgetting is easier for some than for others. Wagner's work has rarely been performed in Israel since 1938. Or do we believe genius gets special dispensation, a behavioral hall pass? And how does our answer change from situation to situation? Are we consistent in the ways we apply the punishment? or rigor of the withdrawal of our audienceship? Certain pieces of art seem to have been rendered unconsumable by their maker's transgressions. How can one watch The Cosby Show after the rape allegations against Bill Cosby? I mean, obviously, it's technically doable, but are we even watching the show? Or are we taking in the spectacle of our own lost innocence? Hello, hello, hello. I am Jose Andres. Maybe you know me from my restaurants or maybe from Wall Central Kitchen, the organization I founded to feed people after disasters. Well, it's time for you to know my podcast, Longer Tables. Each episode, I get to know fascinating people in the most intimate way, through food. Stacey Abrams, Jojo Ma, Jane Goodall, Padma Lakshmi. I will answer questions from listeners, too. Join me in building longer tables, not higher walls, wherever you get your podcasts. Three 
I'm Paul F. Tompkins. I'm Lauren Lapkus. And I'm Scott Ackerman. And together we make up the show Freedom! We're comedians from Los Angeles who are also friends. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? (laughs) And on our podcast, we just chat with each other, have fun, play games. It's just a good hang. We just talk about everything that's happened in our lives ever before and up to now and what will happen next. (laughs) We see the future. (laughs) So the new season's out now. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you get them. Wherever. Wherever. Bye. Freedom!